Oh. Um, thank you. Well, it has been a while, especially since we've been in Matthew. I almost just wanted to reflect on this morning. This morning was so awesome. It was just an awesome time. And there's, um, I talked to Michael Spivey afterwards, and just said, so Michael Spivey, we, Michael, I didn't call him Michael Spivey. Michael, we, we have a lot of people in here that know and actually have experienced these radical forms of salvation. And everybody in here who's saved is a person who's gone from death to life. We know that God changes the lives, but it is something that I think we need to be refreshed in. It brings new life to remember that God has brought us to life. And to me, it was just a reviving thing to remind myself I'm serving a real God who works in real people's lives. And that is really the joy of Christianity. We're not serving an idol made with hands or a philosophical worldview. And tonight we're going to look at Jesus combating some false ideas. And, but at the end, what we're going to see is it's not so much that Jesus is smarter than people or has everything figured out. It's who Jesus is. It's the fact that there's a real God who stepped into real history, really died on the cross, and is really going to change our lives if we follow him. And that's what makes our faith incredible. Uh, I almost got started by accident, but before I do, I forgot one thing I wanted to show you. Sue, did you help Dorothy make this today? Um, you may have already gotten a text. I know Miss Stephanie sent out a text to some people. In nursery, we begin doing some crafts. This is the one that Miss Sue helped Dorothy. I know that Dorothy didn't do it because I can read it, but... Um, <laughs> Ms. Sue helped Dorothy. Uh, Stephanie has bought a bunch of crafts and some other things that are going to be awesome for nursery, and I'm super excited about it. Next week after church, she's going to walk through some of the stuff that she has, some of the ways that we can uh, kind of even ramp up some of the stuff we're doing in nursery. And so if you'll stay after church on Sunday morning next week and just hear what Stephanie has for us. Also, if you know of anybody that would be interested in coming out that maybe they used to serve and haven't or uh, it's time for them to step up and serve, invite them. I think uh, Stephanie is helping make this more than just keeping the kids. And... Um, Dorothy comes home with her crafts and is excited about it and has fun. But all of them, like this, is a little cross that says, For God so loved Dorothy that he gave his only son. And that's a really fun thing. And she, she has another one that she's kind of scratched out. And it's hanging on her little book bag, and she loves it. And so I think it's a, uh, I just wanted to plug that. So you'll be here, and you'll listen, and you'll help make this a really special time for not only the kids, but also for their families when they come home and are excited about what they did. That has nothing to do with Matthew. Matthew chapter 22. It has been a long time, so let's, instead of immediately diving in, let me try to remind you where we are. Um, on, on the next slide, I've, I've done my best. Do you remember a few weeks ago, I showed this video that had the whole outline of Matthew, and it was an incredible artist drawing it? This is my own attempt, but it's not very beautiful like that, but it's 
the outline of Matthew, how Matthew works. Matthew has an introduction and a conclusion, and in between the introduction and conclusion, there are five major sections. And when they're all put together, the whole idea of Matthew is a gospel talking about, or a, a narrative, a story talking about a king and his kingdom. That's the way I'm summarizing it in my own mind. And we saw in the first section, or well, in the introduction, the king is born. We find out that he has been foretold in the Old Testament. He's born and then anointed. Remember, the wise men come and give him the gifts fit for a king. The king is here. Um, Starting in chapters 4 and going through chapter 7, it's the beginning of his kingdom, right? In chapter 4, right after Jesus is baptized by John, the Holy Spirit comes down, and it says at that time Jesus began his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom is nigh. And that begins this whole long story about the king finally being here, finally setting up his kingdom. Uh, In chapters 8 through 10, he brings people into his kingdom. He's calling uh, his disciples, his missionaries, gathering followers. Chapters 11 through 13, you start seeing that not everybody responded the same, and there's different responses. That's where we got our parables of the soils, the four soils. Remember that some people, it would be rocky ground and hard ground, but some would be fertile ground, and they would produce uh, seeds, uh, fruit 30 or 60 or 100-fold. Um, in chapters 14 through 18, we saw some different expectations, and really people expected Jesus to come and be this conquering king. Instead, Jesus came and described himself as the suffering servant, right? Jesus says, I'm low, and he called us to be low. That's where we had the big section on whoever wants to be first will be last, but whoever's last will be first, saying that this whole kingdom is upside down from what you normally expect a kingdom to be like. And now we are in our very last section. This section, um, I'm calling it the clash of the kingdoms. What's happened is now Jesus is in a full-on duke-it-out stage with the kingdoms of the Jewish world that he stepped into. Right? So Jesus is the Messiah of Judaism. He's the Jewish Messiah, but he comes into the Jewish people. They don't accept him. And the reason they don't accept him is because they already have kingdom allegiances, right? You find out that they already have an expectation of what will save them, of what they need, and it's not Jesus. And what there there's really, historically, there's three, sometimes people talk about four, but Matthew works through three major groups, three major ways Jews align themselves, uh, thought of themselves having kingdoms. One group is called the Herodians. The Herodians were people who were political activists, right? They believed that Judaism would best be preserved and protected if we just got along with Herod. We got along with Rome. We, we understood that we had strength here from Rome. They were protecting us. And so they, were, they really had placed a lot of their hope in a political kingdom, right? There was another group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were very sophisticated, educated um, but also, in a way, very liberal people. They, they were what we would, very similar to what we would think of today as theological liberals or religious liberals, in that um, their intellectualism had allowed them to kind of even transcend the, the scriptures of their day, right? So they, they used the scriptures, but they were, they were just the sharp ones, right? They thought highly of themselves. They were rich. They were connected with society. They, they re- really loved their sophistication and their high thinking, 
And the last group were the Pharisees. And these really were the most popular and the most influential kingdom. And, and they were just a religious kingdom. They were, they were the back-to-the-Bible kind of people in the day. The, the issue, the, the difference we've seen all along is that they felt that they would please God or be right with God based on their ability to keep the law. Right? And so they were just super moral. They, re- they read the law. They did their best to keep the law. They even kept laws about keeping the laws. They were the most morally upright people that you could really imagine in society. And so the passage that we're at right now is the end of this narrative section. And starting in 23, Jesus is going to start another sermon, and he's going to really tear down all of these kingdoms. But right here, Jesus is in the section where Jesus is in a conflict with them. And this conflict is organized by Matthew in a series of four tests, four kind of uh, ways to, to prove which kingdom is the best. Dorothy watches a show, just to give you kind of an illustration of what's going on. Uh, Dorothy is in love with this show called Princess Sophia, or Sophia the First, right, Canon? Sophia the First. And it is, kids' cartoons can be insufferable. This is one of the better of the kids' cartoons, in my opinion. But there's one of the uh, episodes in which two princesses show up at the door. They, they claim to be princesses, and they ask Sophia, this one isn't real, and the other one said, this isn't real. And so Sophia the first and her family decide to do a princess test, and they have to run through the princess test and do good princesses, know how to eat with manners, and they know how to dance with grace, and then they know how to, they're smart, and they figure, and so they go through the series of princess tests, and the theme of the show is if you can do these things, you kind of prove that you're a princess. That's really kind of what's happening here, but this is, what we're looking at is a king test, right? Jesus, there's going to be three kingdoms, and then Jesus' kingdom, the fourth, and there's going to be a series of que- uh, questions that are trying to prove which kingdom is the true kingdom, which one is the real one, and what we're going to see is Jesus is going to go first up against the first kingdom, the Herodians, and he's going to win that test. That's actually the one we already looked at if, I don't know if it was actually two months ago, but rack your memory back when Jesus answered the question about the taxes. And the Herodians is asking, who should, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they say, well, whose inscription is on the coin? And Jesus interacts with them. Today, we're going to look at two more of the tests, and really the third one, that Jesus, the fourth one that Jesus initiates, the test where Jesus interacts with the uh, Sadducees, and then the test where Jesus interacts with the Pharisees. And Jesus is going to win all three of these tests. He's going to come out and not only pass the test, but he's going to show up the testers. The people who are asking him to try to show that he doesn't know what he's doing, not only will he prove himself worthy, he will prove them unworthy in his response. And then he gives them a test of his own. And they fail the test. And so what I want us to think through tonight is how are we going to interpret this? As we go through this passage and we read these, we've already done the first one, so we're going to read test two, three, and four tonight. How are we going to try to understand it? And I have really just two goals. One is I want us to try to understand each test. Each question is tricky. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a test question. Each, Each question is really going to stretch us to think a little bit harder, a little bit differently. It's not, this isn't bottom shelf kind of stuff. But I don't want us to get so caught up in the answers to the test that we forget what the test is here to do. 
right? That's the expression, missing the forest for the trees. What I want us to do is make sure that what we see at the end is the whole point of this is that Jesus passed the test, right? The whole point of this is really the song we sang right away. In the very beginning when the song I Am Resolved or the Jonathan Edwards song, I didn't know you were going to sing it, but it says, Jesus is the greatest and the highest, and I will come to thee. Right? And that really is the theme of this passage, that Jesus passed all the tests. He's the greatest. He's the highest. And it's asking us to leave the competing kingdoms and to come to Jesus. So even if we get bogged, we don't want to get bogged down too much in the test questions and forget that Jesus is saying, leave your kingdom and come to mine. Well, that's behind us. All that is set up. Let's read it, and then uh, we'll pray and just try to understand what's going on here. Starting in verse 23, Matthew 22, verse 23, the same day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and to raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died, having no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also, and to the third, and so to all seven. And then the last of all, uh, last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they all had married her. Jesus answered them, You are deceived, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. One of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to them, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? David's, they told him. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? Then he quotes Uh, Psalm 110, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can the Messiah be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day, no one dared to question him anymore. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance for us to gather as a group and study it and, and seek to understand it together. And then I thank you, uh, as, as we sang right before we started here, for your spirit who is able and willing to open our minds and hearts to understand this word and to um, use this word to penetrate our hearts, to reveal our sins and our idols, and to help us fall more uh, dependent and uh, 
just to rely more fully on you. I pray that as I speak that uh, I will be clear, I will be helpful, uh, and, and mostly I'll be out of the way, and that your word will do its work, uh, its good and perfect work. I pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. Test one, we're skipping, right? That was the Herodians. We did that however many weeks ago it was. But just to kind of remind you real quickly, the Pharisees and the Herodians kind of teamed up together to say, should we pay this tax? Jesus answered in a way that basically shut them all up. And he says, really, both of you are wrong. He says, you're, you're wrong to think that you should disrespect your authority. You're wrong to think that you should disobey the government and not pay your taxes, right? Pharisees, you're wrong here. He says, but Herodians, and really this is, seems to be the thrust here, Herodians, you are wrong to think that Caesar is your ultimate authority. You are wrong to put your trust in him. And he said that, he said, whoever's image is on the coin, you give that coin, but whoever's image is on you, that's who you obey, right? We're creating God's image, and so you obey the one who made you. And it kind of reminds the Herodians, we have a higher allegiance here. Our ultimate allegiance is not Caesar. Our ultimate allegiance is the one who created us for a purpose. And in 22, verse 22 there, the last part of the section, they, they see that and they think, we have nothing to say. Uh, let, me, let me see where I wrote that down. Uh, they heard this, they were amazed, they left him and they went away. Right? Jesus answers the test. They hear, they're amazed at his answer, and they have no rebuttal, no rejoinder. They just leave, and he's won the first test. He's, he's passed it and exceeded expectations. So now we're in test two. And to understand test two, we need to understand a little bit about who's giving him the test, the Sadducees. And I've already told you a little bit. They were religious liberals. They were known for their sophistication, their education. They were high-ranking in society, very respected on that level. Um, there's a couple of things religiously that set them apart. One of the things, they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest of the books they thought were kind of like commentaries. And so they could be helpful, they could not be helpful, but we don't, we're not obligated to follow these things. And it gave them the ability to kind of be the pick-and-choose kind of people. Right? So I'll follow this part of the Bible and not this part of the Bible, because they'd eliminated so much of it that they were able to have their, the, the, the ones they liked, right? They, they just followed the parts they liked, which is kind of what I believe a lot of religious liberalism is today. It's a pick and choose which part of the Bible you're going to follow. Um, one of the things they denied was resurrection after the dead, right? They believe we die and we're dead and, and we're no more, right? After we die, there's nothing to us. And the Pharisees they, and the Sadducees, they debated on this. And, and we'll talk about more why. Why did they deny this? Um, not because the Old Testament denied it, not even because the first five books of the Old Testament denied it. They felt like it didn't necessitate it until later. Uh, Joel, in our Sunday school class today, was reading from Ecclesiastes, and it's clear you can't read Ecclesiastes and not believe that there is life and judgment after your death. But that's the whole thing, is once I get rid of life after death, I'm also getting rid of judgment after death. 
And I become a life in which I live to myself. I can do whatever I want, and there's no consequence or no penalty. It makes me my own king, my own ruler, and I believe that's a lot of why they were happy to get rid of the resurrection. So they decide to test Jesus. And they test him by asking Jesus to turn to Deuteronomy 25. And they say, Jesus, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up his offspring for his brother. And then they use a scenario. Uh, And a a logic class is called a reductio ad absurdum. It's an argument from absurdity. Right? I'm going to make an absurd scenario to show you how silly your view is. Right? This, is, this is the kind of strategy, I don't know if you've had somebody ask you, can God make a rock so big he couldn't move it? Or could, could God draw a square circle? These are these kind of, this is so ridiculous. I feel like a, I can prove that you're wrong by making just something crazy ridiculous. And so that's what they're trying to do with marriage. And the, so they ask him, they said, there's a guy, he has, uh, there's a woman, she marries this guy, he has seven brothers, he dies, so she marries the next one, and so on and so on, until she's married all seven, and then she dies. And they say, in the resurrection, and they're kind of snickering, right? They don't believe in a resurrection, but in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to be? And they think, oh, we got Jesus. We just showed how absurd his ideas are. And Jesus has absolutely no patience for it. Which I wanted to stop and point out, it's important to recognize that it's not that Jesus has no patience for honest questions or even for battles of faith because it wasn't very long ago that we read about John the Baptist coming and sending his disciples, Is this, are you really the Messiah? I'm struggling here. And Jesus was compassionate and even said in spite of those struggles, this is the greatest man who's ever lived. But the very fact that they're asking this question reveals a motive here. They're not asking questions in order to understand or to believe. They're asking questions to mock, to put down. And Jesus said that motive, uh, he has no patience for it. There's nothing... um, that binds him to having to get into a compassionate argument with them. But he does put them in their place. And he says, you have two big problems. Your first problem is that you don't understand the scriptures. Your second problem is you don't understand the power of God. And he gives them a really brief explanation of both in reverse order. Um, let's start with the scriptures one, even though that's his second. Since he starts scriptures, power of God, power of God, scriptures, let's, let's focus on the scriptures one first. Jesus quotes to them from Exodus. Exodus chapter 6, remember that these people only believe in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus doesn't go to Ecclesiastes. He doesn't make an argument on something they won't accept. You accept Exodus? I'm going to go to Exodus. And he says, remember Exodus says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. I'm talking present tense. God does not say, remember those guys? He's like, I am currently their God, therefore they must be alive. Not necessarily alive on earth. They had died well before Exodus was ever written. Exodus was written by Moses, who um, hundreds, if not a thousand years after Abraham, right? And a thousand years later, God said, I'm still Abraham's God. Resurrection must be happening right from your book. That's not the bigger problem, though. The bigger problem is that you doubt the power of God. 
Right? Not that you've misparsed a word here. The problem of the reason that you don't believe in the resurrection is because you think God is too weak. That God couldn't handle the circumstances. And I think the, the truth is, we often deal with this same sort of doubts here. I mean, have you ever wondered, sure, God could raise a body that's been buried, but what about somebody that's been cremated or their ashes have been scattered? Or what about another absurd scenario? What if, what if somebody's eaten by a lion, and then I eat the lion that ate that person? And so part of that lion is, what happens? And then Jesus said, just quit doubting the power of God. There's a really cool quote from Blaise Pascal. He says, atheists, what reason have they for saying that we cannot rise from the dead? What is more difficult, to be born or to rise again? That which has never been should be, or that which has been should be again. Is it more difficult to come into existence than to return to it? Because if you can be standing here because God has created you, isn't that sufficient proof that he's completely within his realm of power to make you again? after you die? Is there any reason to doubt that the God who could create the whole world by speaking it into existence in seven days isn't going to be thrown off by those of us who might be cremated? He's not going to say, oh, now they're ashes. I don't know what to do. He created you from nothing. And so he's not, his power isn't limited in this regard. Don't doubt the power of God. And then he gives an explanation. He says, you think that life in heaven or life in the resurrection, life after death, is just basically the same as this life. Everything has to be the same. But it's not. He says, in in heaven, for instance, in in the resurrection, there's neither, people are neither married or given in marriage. But they're like angels. We're talking about a reality that's so far beyond what you're thinking. This is something that angels can understand, but you're not there yet. Now, he doesn't say, let me just be clear, he doesn't say that you will be angels, right? So it's not like we're a cocoon and, and, and we hatch out and we become angels. You know, we're caterpillars now and we become angels later. That's not, we're like them in the sense that we don't get married. But the Bible's pretty clear that we are always humans and that we have a special relationship with God. In fact, the reason why we're not married or given in marriage is because in the resurrection, there's only one groom, that's Christ. And there's only one bride, and that's his church. Which I admit, it's over my head to think I'm a bride. I'm a groom right now, but I'm going to be a bride later. <laughs> but that's the way the resurrection is. I, I, I admit that it's hard for me to, I still have trouble thinking about it. I'm neither married nor given in marriage. What is that going to mean for Canon and I? I? I love Canon. Life, being married to Canon, is the best part of my life. And so heaven, I'm not sure exactly what our relationship's going to be like. What is clear is that it's better than it is, even is now. Right? I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it's better. Uh, Joel shared a few weeks ago a 
blog post that he had written about dogs and animals and if they're in heaven. And in that, he shared a video of a guy named Doug Wilson. And, and he says basically the same thing Jesus says. Y'all's problem is that you don't believe in the power of God. You don't understand it. We imagine heaven being like this giant parking lot where we're all hanging out. And after a while, we put our hands in our pockets and say, an eternity of this? This is all we got? He says, do you honestly believe that God has exhausted all of his creative potential in the six-day creation that we're living in now? Is this the best we got? When Jesus created this world in six days by speaking it into existence, that's what we have now. 2,000 years ago, he left to say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Do you think that what he's doing in 2,000 years is going to be comparably less incredible than what he did in six days simply by speaking it? 1 Corinthians talks about this. You can't, incorruptible cannot understand the corruptible any more than a seed could understand the tree. right? And that would be like an acorn asking Asking an acorn to understand what an oak tree is is just better, beyond better. One of my favorite books is a kid's book, The Last Battle. And uh, after they die, they're into Narnia, and they're expanding, and they keep going in. And it's, it's like they're getting further, in, further up and further in. It's bigger and bigger. And I think, if C.S. Lewis can create a world that I wish I could go into, do I honestly believe that God is going to be less creative than the C.S. Lewis, whom he created? My problem is the same as the Sadducees. I don't understand the power of God. His promises, abounding joys, never-ending delight. The resurrection is something that is the hope of all Christians. So he passes this test, right? He tells them, not only can I show you from your own scriptures that I am superior in my biblical understanding to you. He puts them in their place to say, this isn't sophisticated thinking. This is purely a lack of faith and belief and understanding and the power of God. And the crowds respond. They're astonished to him, and he moves on to the next test. In the third test, we have the Pharisees. And they come and they ask Jesus, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? Let's pause and just remind ourselves, who are the Pharisees? These are the law keepers. These are the most moral in society. And they're the people who've created laws to help them keep the laws. They love the law. But no matter how good you are at keeping the law, you recognize, I'm not keeping them all perfectly. And so we have to make some sort of a hierarchy. Right? We have to make some sort of, these are the non-negotiables, and these are the do the best you can. Right? And so when you're trying to come up with this hierarchy, which one is the non Which one is this one you never break? Right, so um, do you know what I mean by coming up with a hierarchy? Have you heard the example of if you were in, um, let, let's say, World War II and you were hiding a Jew in your house and the Nazis come and they knock on the door and they say, there are, are there any Jews hiding in there? And you have to decide, do I lie here or do I become an accomplice in murder? And you're trying to wrestle, which, which law is the highest law here? Which one do I break? This is the kind of thinking that the Pharisees are wrestling in. And they're like, which law do I say, this is the one I never break? This is the hierarchy. And the goal of this is to prove 
before God, I'm good. Right? Sure, I've broken some of the little ones. Right? I, don't, I think I've told you before, Martin Luther's priest said to him one time at confession, you're coming with what is a Latin word, picadillos, the, the little tiny sins. He said, quit coming to me with little tiny sins. Come back when you have something big to confess. Now, the Pharisees are thinking, sure, I might have had these little sins, but nothing big. So God must be pleased with me. But Jesus, just tell us, in your opinion, which is the big one? And so Jesus says, yeah, I'll tell you the big one. And he goes back to the law, Deuteronomy 6, I believe, and he reads to them this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I'll just pause for a second. Deuteronomy 6 is all your strength. Jesus changes it to all your mind. And I wonder, or, or Matthew here, I'm wondering why that changed. And I wonder if part of that is because Matthew is showing us an interaction in which Jesus is having to give a defense for his faith. And he's just reminding us here that the reason that Jesus stands up to them is because he knows his Bible. Right? So that you cannot think, I've loved God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and have not studied and read your Bible enough to defend your faith. Right? To defend it against attacks. Because part of loving God is knowing the book that he's giving us, given us. Loving him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind means I love the letter he's given me. And I'm going to read it and know it. Anyway, moving on, he says, this is the greatest commandment. He said, there's a second one. It's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep these two commandments, you've kept all the commandments. And if you break any of the other commandments, any of the lesser ones, really you've broken these two. Right? You think murder is a big deal. It's impossible to murder somebody. Somebody, If I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I cannot murder someone that he loves. And obviously, if I've murdered them, I'm not loving them as I love myself because I don't want them to murder me. Right? Murder is not only a violation of the sixth commandment of the ten, it's a violation of the first two. I can't do this if I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and my neighbors myself. But it's not just murder, it's coveting, it's lying, it's adultery, it's lusting, it's greed, it's idolatry. Any sin is at its root a failure to love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, or all my mind. Any sin is the belief that I'll get more joy out of chasing this thing than I would out of knowing and honoring God. Anytime I wrong another person, I am failing to treat them as I would treat myself. Now, what he does here is, A, proves to the Pharisees, I know my Bible. Right? The Pharisees would have expected him to pick out one of the Ten Commandments, I would expect. And they would have tricked him there, right? Well, you said, no false gods, but so are you cool with murder? You can get them in pitting them together, and he gets into a debate that you can't win. But he's gone back, not to the ten, but he's gone to the root of all the commands, and he silences them. But not only does he pass his test, his answer condemns the Pharisees of what they tr- use the law to do. Who could possibly say, I have loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who could possibly say, I've treated my neighbor as myself? 
I've shown kindness to them that I would like them to show to me all the time. The law for these Pharisees was a chance to justify themselves. But when Jesus goes to the most important law, the big one, it's impossible to justify ourselves. Any one of us would say, I haven't loved anywhere near what I should. To be honest, uh, back to my relationship with Canaan, I love Canaan. But do I love her as I love myself? Do I love her as a husband should? All the time I'm falling short. And to be honest with you, I feel like I fall way shorter in my love for God. In many ways, Canaan's easy. She's right here in front of me. If I ignore Canaan for long, she gets a, she'll tell me before God who's patient and endures my waywardness. Also, Canaan doesn't know half of the things that I do wrong because they're all up in my head. He knows every offense that I've ever done and loves me anyway. Who could ever stand up to this law? So Jesus has not only passed this test, he's shown them that they failed their own. The Herodians have trusted the government, and it was wrong. God's the one that made them. The Sadducees have trusted their wisdom and their own law, and he's no, you don't even understand the scriptures or the power of God. And the Pharisees who have trusted in religion, a kingdom of religion, he said, you can't even be religious enough. Your kingdom crumbles because you cannot love God or your neighbor enough. And so this last test, he says, let me give you a test. He says, y'all have given me three, I've passed them, and not only passed them, I've shown you up in all three. Let me give y'all one test. And he asked them a question. The Pharisees, the most respected religious leaders in the community, he says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they answered, David. This, this maybe you'd say is the first question of the test, but really not the test. This is the easy. This is the softball setup. They know the Messiah is going to be David's son. And then here's where it gets hard. He asked them, how is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. How is it that David would say, the Lord said to my Lord? The first Lord like I'm breathing into my mic too much. It's a little better. The first Lord is God himself, Yahweh. God said to the Messiah, who David also calls his Lord. In Jewish culture, you don't call your son my master, my Lord. It's inappropriate. Why would David, the great king of Israel, Call his own son, my Lord. And they're speechless. I don't know. Why would he do that? That seems inappropriate. A father should be respected by a son. A son should honor their parents, not parents honor their son. There's something wrong here. Let me read to a com- from a commentary to explain this, and I'll try to go back and, and smooth out any of the difficult areas. But this is one of the commentators' response to this whole section. 
The first Lord is clearly Yahweh, but who is the second? Moreover, the second Lord sits at God's right hand and has all, and has all his enemies placed under his feet. If David therefore calls him Lord, how is he the son? This question cannot mean that Jesus is now denying Davidic ancestry to the Messiah. That much has just been clearly established. Instead, we must understand him to be asking, how can the Messiah be merely a human descendant of Israel's great king? Jesus affirms that the Messiah must be more than a mere mortal. The solution suggested, though not expressed, is that Jesus is not only the son of David, but also the son of God. He says, tellingly, no one in Jesus' audience was able to answer the question, though the logic seems irrefutable. Why is it that David can call his son Lord? Because his son is also the son of God that sits on God's right hand beside his throne. This is heaven's ruler, the prince of heaven. David is right to call him Lord because he is God. Now, granted, how we can understand that God can become the son of David, who would have understood that until it happened through a lowly virgin Mary? Which is why Christmas is such a, we're celebrating an incredible, mind-blowing miracle. But Jesus is saying that's exactly what's happened. He's like, your kingdoms have all fallen. Your kingdom of your trust in your government has fallen. Your kingdom and your trust in your sophistication and your education and your own uh, strength in society, that has fallen in, my, in that second test. And even your, this kingdom of religious performance, the idea that I can go to church, I can keep the, raw, the rules, I can do it right, he says, that has just fallen. But there's a reason that Jesus' kingdom won't. Because he actually is the king. It's like, I am the only one who has the right to be the king because I am the son of God who sits at the right hand of the father, at the throne of the father, and all my enemies have been put under my feet, under my footstool. That's why my kingdom is worthy to be followed. This is the climax of this whole narrative section. Jesus has clashed with the kingdoms. And he's proven himself superior in every single way. Let me try to conclude and, and wrap this up a little bit here. Uh, I want to point out just a couple of things I thought were interesting. One is Jesus is tested three times, past each test. Three seems to be this number of um, kind of a fullness, right? Jesus is died and is dead for three days before he's raised again, and it shows he's fully dead. Jonah in the belly of a fish for three days. Jesus, when he's in the wilderness, is tested three times. And this is saying he has fully combated, fully conflicted the kingdoms of, is of Israel, the kingdoms of government, the kingdoms of self-knowledge and aggrandizement, religion, the kingdom of religion. He's, he's fought them all, and he's come out the victor. He not only passes the test by showing himself to have superior knowledge, 
but to be a superior person. Right? It's not just that Jesus is really smart. He's saying, I'm God. In other words, this whole test, this whole battle wasn't fair to begin with. So because we're doing a Bible test here, and what y'all don't understand is Jesus is the one who wrote the Bible, right? He's the Word who spoke all things in his existence, and the Bible is about him, right? Who's the Messiah that the whole Old Testament's about? It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. So the deck was stacked here. But that's the same reason why he's the king that we should follow. It's the kingdom. We should leave all other kingdoms and be in his. This is kind of how I opened up a little bit. This, in my mind, is proof that uh, at least implies we're not peddling good ideas here. Right? It's not, it's not the Christianity, and, and it does, don't get me wrong, Christianity can explain the world that we live in better than any other worldview. Christianity has answers and, and counseling programs and, and, and it has ways to help people through wise, just wisdom in general. But that's not the ultimate, that's not the center of what Christianity is. The center of Christianity is that the king of heaven has stepped from his throne and entered earth has competed with all other kingdoms and found himself to be the victor and offers us to join him to be part of his kingdom. Right? We're not worshiping ideas. Though those ideas necessarily come with him, we're worshiping the person who has generated those ideas. So let me ask now, as, as we wrap this up, how do you apply something like this? How do you read through these four tests and let that change the way we live tonight and tomorrow and throughout the week. And, and I've thought of some things. One is, I don't want to be like the people who tested Jesus. Right? So I don't want to be like the Sadducees who discount parts of the Bible because they're not convenient to me. Right? I don't want to be like them and, and doubt God's power. To believe that somehow my power is sufficient to understand and think and that God is limited He can't do more than I can imagine. He can't do more than I can do. I want to believe that I'm serving a God who's way bigger than not only me, but any of my ideas, any of my imaginations. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want the law to become something I use to justify myself. I thought this as we listened to Teen Challenge today, how one of the... Though it is a reviving time for me, I always worry that we will sit out there and think, and there's a southern phrase, God bless their hearts, right? Like those guys really needed it. I always worry that's going to be our perspective of, ooh, I wish this person was here because they needed to hear that. As if it, I don't need an absolute miracle to change my heart. Right? I, don't want the, I don't want my religion to be something that has justified me. Rather, I want to recognize that I am the one that needs to be justified. I'm the one who needs a miracle-working God to step out of heaven and die in my place. So I'm going to try to apply this by not being these bad examples. I do want to be like Jesus in a way. I'm impressed that Jesus took on the best in his society, the top 
representatives of the kingdoms of his society, and he bested them all with his knowledge of the scripture. I want to be a person who studies to show myself approved. I know that I, um, I mean, one, one advantage I have is that part of my job is I get to study, and I'm still woefully inadequate. Um, but I want to take serious idea that God has asked me to love him, not only emotionally with my heart and my soul, but with my mind. And so I want to take that requirement seriously. But I think the ultimate thing that this passage is asking us to do is to trust Jesus, right? It's to make this resolution that we sing about, to make this commitment that I'm put, all other kingdoms I'm forsaking. I am trusting Jesus as the greatest and highest. I'm coming after him. Um, I want to investigate my heart. Have I put my trust in political kingdoms? I'm one person who is slightly depressed at the political kingdom that we're in right now. Um, But that can be a sign to me that I put too much hope in this kingdom to begin with. And so I don't want to be a person that thinks the answer to our world's problems is the government, no matter who's running, no matter who's elected. I don't want to put my hope in my sophistication. I don't want to be a Sadducee who my kingdom is, is my accomplishments. Right? I don't want to be... There's a... I don't know if you've seen Napoleon Dynamite. There's this character named Uncle Rico who always tells... that first thing he talks about his high school championship football game. And he's never... His claim to fame is his great high school football accomplishment. I don't want my hopes to be on what I've accomplished in the past or even what I think I'm going to accomplish in the future. My hope isn't going to be that I'm good enough or I'm smart enough or I've done something great in my life, that I will never be great enough. I will never be smart enough. I will never be kind enough. I will never be rich enough to make myself justified in the eyes of God. And I don't want my hope to be in my religious performance, even in my church or my pastoring. And I, I don't want my hope to be in my ability to keep God's laws and expectations and commandments in a way that he would be um, pleased with me. Because the truth is, when I look into my heart, I always know I haven't loved him with all my heart, soul, mind, strength. So it leaves me with one option. I want to be the person who puts all my trust in his kingdom, in the king. I want all of my trust to be in the one who stepped out of heaven for my sake. And so my application this week for myself, and I ask you to join with me, is to check your hopes. What do you, what do you believe is the answer to the world's problems? What do you believe is what makes you likable in God's mind? We ask this question, uh, Pastor Johnny asked it two Wednesdays ago at the boys' uh, facility that we go to. If you were to die and Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What are you going to say? Don't say because I was part of the American kingdom. Or my kingdom was myself and I did good. And don't even say that my, I was of a religious kingdom. Say it's because I know the king. 
the one who sits at your right hand, and you have put all enemies under his feet. If the music team wants to come up, I'm going to pray, and we'll move into a time of response.